0: My guest today is Mark O'Connell, whose new book, A Thread of Violence, is the writer's attempt to understand Malcolm MacArthur, the figure at the centre of one of Ireland's most notorious crimes, and, to quote Taoiseach Charles Hawkey, the grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented events that led to the perpetrator's eventual arrest in the home of the Irish Attorney General. It's a crime that has haunted O'Connell for decades, for reasons I'm sure we'll come on to discuss, and which leads him to meeting and getting to know the now elderly Longfried MacArthur. As this unlikely acquaintance grows, however, O'Connell not only comes to question the possibility of ever coming to any conclusion about what actually drove this previously law-abiding local eccentric to murder two strangers in the summer of 1982, but also calls into doubt his own motivations for embarking on the project in the first place, and the risks he's taking in his own life to complete it. A threat of violence is as striking for his literary and sociological ambition as it is for the horrific crimes it's investigating. Sally Rooney has called it a superb and unforgettable book. While Emmanuel Carrère said in the Pantheon of Writers fascinated by criminals, Mark O'Connell proves himself among the most brilliant. Mark O'Connell, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast.
1: Thank you, Adam. It's good to be back.
0: It's good to have you here. And like, the last time we spoke was um, not about your previous book, uh, Notes from an Apocalypse, because that was released during our, the semi-apocalypse of the <laughs> the pandemic. Um, but actually, for your last book, but one, uh, To Be a Machine um and on the surface when I first saw the the subject matter of um a threat of violence this seemed like quite a departure thematically for you um did it feel like that for you as your position as a writer yes
1: it did like when I started to think about this as a topic for a book and even while I was writing it it seemed like I was doing something completely different um now that I've finished the book and now that it's out in the world there are some you know, through lines and connective tissues, but it Mm -hmm. it is, you know, it's, it's a different kind of topic. And I think the most obvious kind of difference between this and the previous two books is that this is a, uh, a discrete narrative, you know, the previous Mm -hmm. essentially essay collection. So they were, you know, reported essays and, uh, they, you know, they weren't entirely essayistic, but they were kind of discrete essays. The the books organized around very particular themes, uh, but they were, very much made up of parts whereas this book is is very much a sort of a a continuous narrative um so yeah there are are sort of obvious differences between this and my previous work but um yeah some of the some of the obsessions I think you could probably track back Uh to to the earlier books
0: and did did you feel then that you had to almost kind of relearn your craft to um to to undertake this project I mean that that's putting it quite dramatically. I wrote it in a very different
1: way, you know. It like the mm-hmm. technique was very different, uh, and in some ways the style is different. You know, I I was aware at a certain point, and all of this is instinctive. It wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, a conscious decision on my part. Mm-hmm. But I think <clears throat> you know the, the the first two books to be a Machine and Notes from an Apocalypse. They're quite funny, you know. They're mm-hmm. they're filled with with uh humor and kind of jokes and and also I would say the style is turned up a little bit in mm-hmm. those. Books. Um there's something a little bit uh maybe show offy about the sentences and you know <laughs> these long kind of quite intricate sentences. Whereas this is it's less funny, I think, for obvious uh-huh. reasons. There are there are certainly moments of humor and you know people have remarked on that. But uh it's a it's a pretty serious book. And I think uh in a way that is possibly linked to that, there's less uh there's less kind of investment in style for mm-hmm. style like in this book it's a more straightforward you know it, it's a much more complicated book in in a lot of ways you know um in terms of my own kind of uh questioning of of truth and and questioning of uh narrative techniques and and moral questioning and so on it's it's pretty complicated but in in terms of like telling a story it's mm-hmm. relatively straightforward and, and stylistically I think it's 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 less overtly kind of, um, literary maybe than, than mm-hmm. the other two books.
0: Well, come on, I think, um, when we talk about the, the, um, the structure of the book and particularly your sort of moral concerns about it a bit later, but, um, cause I think the question of style will, will play back into that. But before we go further, when, when I heard about this book, I was surprised not to have heard about the case of Malcolm MacArthur, uh, before. And I, so I sort of sounded out a few people, uh, among my colleagues, actually, we have quite a, I have quite a lot of Irish colleagues mm. and, um, some in their kind of who were in their sort of mid to late forties were uh, sort of, you know, vaguely aware of it. They had a sense of who he was. And when I reminded them of some details, it became a little bit um a little bit clearer. But it wasn't um considering how how dramatic it was and how sort of, I guess, um how many twists and turns there are to the events themselves, I was actually quite surprised how how little um little known the the story of Malcolm MacArthur was. Was that your feeling when you you first uh, you first approached it that this was a story which had in some way faded from the so let's say the collective memory of people in Ireland and beyond.
1: Like yeah, yes, and no, I suppose. Like when I started to um, write the book, uh, I started to talk to people about it, um, and that was a deliberate kind of uh, decision. Um because the more that I talked to people about it, the more that I kind of learned about the topic mm-hmm. um you know, Ireland is a very small country, Dublin's a pretty small city um people have connections to this case in a lot of in a lot of instances, so the more I talked, the more I kind of learned from people about mm-hmm. their you know it, it's sometimes their own memories, sometimes their own kind of tangential connections to MacArthur and to you know Patrick Connolly, the attorney general mm-hmm. and to the story and all its. Different facets. So that that was a deliberate thing. But one thing that I <clears throat> learned when I started to talk to people about it was that, you know, broadly speaking, I don't want to be too sort of categoric about this, but uh, I definitely noticed it was kind of an age horizon. So mm-hmm. anyone over the age of, I don't know, 50, 55, probably, mm-hmm. was almost guaranteed to know what I was talking about when mm-hmm. I met Malcolm MacArthur. Or they might kind of get this slightly quizzical look, and I would say, goo you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the Hahi scandal and they would say, oh yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Um, whereas when it got to sort of my age and and y- certainly younger, um, it was a bit of a roll of the dice as to whether people would mm-hmm. know. I'm talking about Irish people particularly here. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people just had no idea. They'd never heard of it. And they were kind of, uh, gobsmacked to hear that this thing. <laughs> happened. Um, and there were also people who were like, oh yeah, I'm obsessed with this. You know, I read everything mm-hmm. I my hands on, you know, I'm always <laughs> about him. I've seen him around Dublin, all this kind of thing. Uh so yeah, I, I think but 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 yeah, certainly people who were old enough to have been aware of what was happening at the time in nineteen eighty two, they don't need any any reminding of, of of what this what this story was. I think internationally in the UK and certainly in America, it's 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 unlikely that you know, I'm not uh-huh. surprised you know that you were not familiar with this. If I yeah. think if you read Banville's book, The Book of Evidence, there's a strong chance mm-hmm. that, that you would at least that it would ring a bell, but um mm-hmm. other than that it's it's yeah. Quite a localized phenomenon,
0: you know. Yeah. Well, for for our listeners then who might not be aware of it, would you just be able to sort of sketch out the um, the arc? I suppose particularly of the the crimes themselves. Like, we'll come on to talk about like MacArthur's background in in a moment, but yeah, but the, the the crimes that actually led this to becoming a sort of a national story, a yeah. scandal.
1: Well, I suppose it's hard to separate the background from from the crimes in a way. So I'll just say mm-hmm. briefly that MacArthur was, um, in the nineteen seventies and early eighties, a kind of a well known figure on the dublin social scene he was uh you know i would hesitate to call him a socialite but in some ways that's what he was you know he was a kind of uh um he was certainly someone who who kind of lived the high life and, and sort of mixed in in quite rarefied circles and he was uh very much a kind of a um an intellectual you know he was someone who lived what you might call the life of the mind it didn't didn't work it came from quite a uh not an aristocratic background by any means, but sort of landed gentry. And, you know, his family had had a fair bit of money and he was very much a product of privilege and lived off a a fairly substantial inheritance. And when the inheritance ran out in 1982, instead of deciding to get a job, he uh, decided he was going to rob a bank. He was going to pull off some kind of armed robbery, a bank or a post office. Um, He was living in Tenerife at the time with his partner and his, his young son. His son was seven years old and he came back um, and in the kind of effort to get what he needed to get in order to pull off this armed robbery, namely a um, a shotgun and a a car to, you know, a getaway car, he uh, very brutally uh, and quite senselessly murdered two uh, young people, two 27-year-olds, a nurse called Bridie Gargan and a a farmer two days later named Donald Dunn. Um, He beat bridey gargan to death with a hammer in the phoenix park um she was sunbathing uh, it was the hottest day of the year um she was kind of minding her own business lying beside her car and in the effort to steal her car he he uh beat her to death uh and then two days later outside of dublin in a place called uh, edenderry in Offaly, he uh made contact with this uh young farmer donald dunn who was advertising a shotgun for sale uh, macarthur went down to try out the gun um, there was some kind of struggle. He shot him in the face, dragged the body into some bushes, stole his car, drove back to Dublin. And um, at this point, you know, two quite spectacularly brutal murders in Ireland in the early 1980s, it would have been quite unusual for, for these things to happen. You know, the murders that that were in the public eye would have been very much connected with the troubles in, mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland. Um, so it was you know, a very public manhunt, very uh, public investigation. Um, the public were, were very much aware of it. It was a big kind of media circus in a way. Uh, and when he was arrested, uh, just over two weeks later, he was arrested in the home of, uh, as I said, Patrick Connolly, who was the attorney general at the time. So it was a huge, uh, he was a friend of, of MacArthur's. Connolly knew nothing about it. He was, he was staying with him uh, while he was in town. Um, so there was a huge kind of political fallout, um, very nearly brought down. government at the time it um certainly contributed to the weakening of the government that fell later that year so it's been a kind of a a case that's lived in the culture um in in this country for you know the last 40 years macarthur had never spoken there was Mm -hmm. really almost no trial at all there was the trial lasted i think less than five minutes maybe seven minutes um Mm -hmm. spoke there was no evidence heard he pleaded guilty to one of the murders, the murder of Bridie Gargan. He was never charged with the second murder. So he got life for Bridie Gargan's murder. Um, and he'd never spoken publicly at all. Uh, he's been out for 10, you know, actually uh, 12 years now. Uh, and so, yeah, so this book is the, is the first time that he's ever spoken to anyone publicly mm-hmm. uh, about his life and about, about the crime. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the you know elevator pitch. For yeah. The- yeah. I mean,
0: it's such such an extraordinary and sort of, baffling, um, series of events for, for so many different reasons. Um, and it's one that has been sort of tied to your life in different ways. So you mentioned the, uh, the apartment complex where he was, uh, where he was arrested, which was also the apartment complex that your, um, your grandparents yep. lived in. And yep. so, um, as a, I think you say as a three-year-old, it was mm. you, um, you know, that was when you first became aware of the story. And it struck me that sort of, Um, Because as I say, some of my colleagues I spoke to who um, I think are a little bit older than you, Mm. you know, they had sort of vague recollections of it. But it struck me that actually that must have been such a formative concept for you as a as a three year old. Do you sort of cite that moment as the sort of the real beginning, in a sense, of your of your interest in MacArthur?
1: You know, there's sort of layers of of like bedrock to to my Mm. relationship to this story for want of a better term um you know i don't think i was aware of it when i was three i don't think i was aware of it at the time that it was happening mm-hmm. it would have been you know several years later i suppose i was seven or eight uh when i heard about it um but it was that you know i don't want to make too much of it to you know to say that it cast a shadow over my childhood or anything mm-hmm. like that would be just simply too much you know um and there is this kind of trope with nonfiction writers being <laughs> that they're, you know topics and there's, there's stuff, but it's not you know it didn't it didn't shape my, Mm -hmm. my my psyche as a, as a child or anything like that, but I was aware of it and it was this kind of um, strange kind of flickering presence and and occasional fascination. But I think that, you know, I I wouldn't say that that was the source of my, my, you know, quote unquote obsession with this case. I Mm -hmm. think that probably has more to do with the fact that in my mid twenties, I did a PhD in in Trinity in Dublin on, on John Banville's work and and Banville's novel the book of evidence is very much, you know, it's loosely, but very recognizably based Mm on the MacArthur affair and his character Freddie Montgomery who's at the center of now four of Banville's novels is uh, certainly in that book, certainly in the book of evidence, very much based on MacArthur. Mm -hmm. So when I was uh, I'd finished the PhD and I was doing a postdoc in Trinity the year that MacArthur was released and I would see him around. And so the, Mm I think the real spark of interest that kind of ignited this book was it had as much to do with freddie montgomery banville's character mm-hmm. and my kind of you know i would be in the library reading this book thinking about this character writing about this character reading academic criticism about this book and i would leave the library and i would see this man you know i mm-hmm. would see a person who i could only see at that point as, as freddie montgomery it's you know th- that's mm-hmm. that guy you know but it was also you know, Michael MacArthur was a very real person. So I think the, the initial kind of germ of the book had more to do with the kind of weird relationship between fiction and reality Mm -hmm. and the kind of consubstantiality of fiction and truth. That Mm -hmm. is, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess we we started talking about the, you know, the, the extent to which this book is a, Is a deviation from my previous books, but I think that that's one area in which it's an Mm -hmm. intensification of something that's always been there for me, and I've always been interested in this. Um, You know, Borges is a is a huge person for me, for for, in good ways Mm -hmm. and in bad. You know, like it's (laughs) uh, probably a bit overwhelming at times, but uh, one thing that I've absolutely uh, either taken from Borges or like identified with his work in in some ways is that I do have this fascination with where truth and reality and mm-hmm. intersect and this was very much a kind of a yeah a kind of a white rabbit leading me down the down the into, the, into through the looking glass I'm sorry to yeah admit, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you've um you've mentioned a few times about how you would sort of see him around and oh you know cross paths with him and stuff and I think Um, to people who don't know Dublin that might seem like quite a surprising um sort of possibility actually that sort of um and there's there's also a um you know the story about uh MacArthur and a friend that he he had at a moment where basically he would just go and sit in a particular place knowing that he'd probably have a good chance of of bumping in into this guy um Hmm. and this is maybe this may be sort of a a bit of a, a bit of a digression but the thing that this put me in mind of was um, Ulysses, perhaps unsurprisingly.
1: Uh, nice.
0: Because, <laughs> because I, well, the last thing I read of yours before this book was a paper you gave at a, a Joyce conference oh, yeah. about the sort of the effect that the the city had on the book and then that the book has had on the city. Mm. Um, and I was just wondering if there was something for you in the sort of the, the presence of MacArthur, both as kind of as this kind of semi-fictional or semi-fictionalised character in the city of Dublin, that it, is there some sort of connection that you would draw with the way that the sort of the city um, has this effect on, on real people and on, on sort of like fictional creations?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Cause like w- when you said, you know, uh, the whole thing of like bumping into MacArthur in the streets and people who don't know Dublin might be slightly, you know, surprised by, by mm-hmm. that possibility. Um the thing I was going to say was that, you know, it, it's not an accident that Dublin is the city in which Ulysses is set. Mm-hmm. Like in, in some ways, Dublin is, is a kind of an every city in, in Joyce's imagination, but also mm-hmm. it's very much distinctly itself. It's very much distinctly Dublin. And I don't think you, Ulysses would work in, you know, London probably wouldn't work in Paris. You know, mm-hmm. these are too big and too kind of uh, spread out that, you know, Bloom and and Stephen aren't gonna bump into each other um two or three times in in any other city. Oh, not not to say that it wouldn't happen in, you know, Porto or something, but uh Dublin is uh one of the kind of most remarkable things about it is is that it is uh a city of pedestrians and it's a city mm-hmm. uh it's it's very intimate, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and in some ways claustrophobic, and I think that probably comes across in the book. Um but yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mentioned Ulysses in if not the first line of the book, certainly uh-huh. <laughs> out of the way, uh, you know, and, and then I move on very quickly. But sure. Joyce's Tower is is on the first mm. page of the book, you know, mm. um, and that's not for nothing either. You know, there's like, I'm kind of signaling that this is, you know, this, I don't think there's anything particularly to in about the book, um, certainly not consciously, but the city mm. in which Ulysses takes place is very much the city in which I, I live, you know, and mm-hmm. the city in which this book is set as well, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. There was something about that sort of, um, I guess, accessibility of your chosen subject, which actually I can I can only imagine must have, in a way, been quite like a sort of a scary thing because it must be sort of, you know, I, c- I can imagine you get, you know, as a writer, one might take an interest in a subject and then the access to that subject is not necessarily guaranteed and it will often be kind of, You know quite hard and in a way perhaps you've got a bit of an out if like you know the 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 subject you want to write about has isolated themselves away and is not accessible but knowing that the person you have decided to write about this uh, the person who's also a double murderer was so easily accessible to you uh on the streets of Dublin was that was that quite a sort of an uh, an intimidating prospect in a way (laughs) um not
1: really you know because because I was like, I, I, I think, you know, I, I guess maybe this comes across in the book. I'm not too explicit about it, but one of the kind of major sort of elements of of all of this, in terms of my approach to MacArthur and my approach to the story, there was a certain amount of, of like, a lot of mm-hmm. naivety on my part. Because of that, because because he was kind of, Dublin is a small city. I would see him around. I had this sort of complacent sense. Uh, and I guess a naive sense that I'll just, you know, stop him on the street and talk to him and, and uh. to, to speak to me for my book. Why wouldn't he, you know, why, why would he <laughs> Um And, it, you know, <laughs> there was a certain amount of naivety on the part of my publishers as well in, you know, agreeing to this principle that, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll go get him to talk. And even if he doesn't, it'll be something interesting and so on. Um but I didn't realize how steeply the odds were stacked against MacArthur speaking to me. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something I go into in the book and it, in a, in a way it's, it's, it's a, it's a major part of the story in the sense that it's mm-hmm. a major part of my relationship with MacArthur is that, you know, the reason he had never spoken publicly about his crimes or about anything before mm-hmm. was that since he's been released from prison, you know, he, he got life for, mm-hmm. for the murder of Brody Gargan um he's out on license which you know is a peculiarity i think now of of irish law and and the the regulations have changed even since he got out but one of the kind of stipulations of his release and there are several of them but one of them is that he would not approach uh i'm struggling to remember the exact wording but basically he would not approach members of the media Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the reason why he's never spoken publicly because, you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't know this at the time, but you know, it stands to reason, I suppose that MacArthur has been a kind of a white whale figure here. I'm calling him a white whale. He was a white rabbit a second ago, but (laughs) white whale figure for Irish journalists, Mm -hmm. filmmakers, documentary makers, um, you know, podcasters, all these kinds of people for about a decade you know, uh, much more significant figures than me in terms of the world of Irish journalism uh, have tried to get him to talk. And, you know, I learned eventually that he's been offered like pretty eye-watering sums of money um to talk. Uh And he's never done it for the simple reason of his uh license. Um, So there was a certain amount of naivety there in thinking that I could get him to talk, but also a kind of a, maybe a, combination of arrogance and kind of instinct in kind of thinking well the people who've approached him in the past are largely crime writers or Mm -hmm. you know television broadcasters television journalists um i have a kind of a different i'm a different kind of non-fiction writer Mm -hmm. you know um i'm not a journalist in the sense that i'm not an employee of any media organization i don't really think of myself as a journalist and obviously i go into this in the book in a sort of a semi-comic way the way that I approached him was to say that I'm an essayist and Mm -hmm. and talk about my, you know, kind of academic prehistory. And, you know, I had a copy of the New York review of books that I had a piece in that, you know, it just happened, like literally, (laughs) they gave me author copies and I had it in my bag and I gave him one of those and I gave him a copy of my first book. And, you know, there's something slightly kind of farcical about it, but also I did have an instinct that if he was going to talk to me, it would probably be because of the ways in which I was different to mm-hmm. people who had previously approached him. And that, in a way, I would be flattering his intellectual vanity, and mm. that would be the thing that might open the door. It's funny, as I've talked about this, like, you know, I'm quite open about this in the book, and I've done a few interviews, and, you know, a couple of interviews have sort of, as though they're catching me out, said, you know, do you think you might have been Flattering is intellectual vanity and and I've kind of said, well, yeah, that's exactly a <laughs> question about it you know um so yeah there's there is an element of that, and so the naivety I guess paid off you know the naivety and mm. you know uh in combination with the arrogance or whatever you know mm-hmm.
0: one of the one of the things that we find um as a sort of a constant in the book is this i guess resistance uh on your part to um to impose a sense or a, um, or sort of, I think you, uh, at the moment you sort of say that you realize that what you want is narrative coherence and he's not, uh, and he's not giving it to you mm-hmm. um, as a sort of um, in, in the sort of, in the, in the, in the process of um, of interviewing him and getting to know him, how difficult was that for you to, to resist, I guess, both as a writer and also as you know, these days, I guess we're all kind of like pop psychologists and we've been kind of raised in a culture which uh, which tries to kind of, you know, understand people based on their based on certain events in their background. Was it was it something you had to be kind of constantly on guard against during the the conversations you were having with it?
1: Not so much in the conversations, because in the conversations, you know, I guess I was doing things or had d- different things or had different roles mm-hmm. as an interviewer or mm-hmm. an auditor, listener and as a writer. Um, As an interviewer, I guess my job was to try and make him make sense, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's my job as a writer to a certain extent as well. But as I was writing and thinking about, you know, his story um, and, and trying to make sense of these incredibly brutal things that he did and also trying to make sense of my position in relation to them. You know, I started to realize that none of it really, nothing, there was no one thing that explained Mm -hmm. why he did what he did. You know, Um, I don't think he understands it himself. Mm. He makes claims that he's absolutely, you know, aware of his own motivations and, and, you know, part of the tension in our relationship is that I'm basically like a Freudian you know I'm kind of Uh (laughs) basically psychoanalytic perspective in the sense that I think that we don't really understand ourselves and he doesn't understand why he's Mm -hmm. why he did what he did um he's absolutely coming from a different point of view but you know there was a moment early on in, in writing the book when I started to realize that there was no one way of explaining what he why he did what he did and maybe no way of explaining it at all and I was thinking of do you know that book the the Raymond Queneau book, uh, Exercises in Style. Mm, of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I sort of thought, well, maybe there's a there's a way in which I could write this book in a kind of a Raymond Queneau way of, mm-hmm. you know, not exercises in style, but exercises in rationalization, where uh-huh. there could be 99 different ways of explaining why MacArthur did what he did. Like, of course, I didn't do that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, my American editor is usually very good at sort of pushing back against my more kind of highfalutin, <laughs> yeah. he was kind of willing to entertain that he said you know do it if you if you think it'll work um i think he was probably very much thinking you know let's let's get a first draft and then, then mm-hmm. but um i think some element of that probably even though i didn't write it in that way some element of 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 that way of thinking about it probably carried me through you know in the book and is probably still present in some sense um yeah, and, and there was some frustration there for sure that there is no no coherent map, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and the book is is in a way a series of frustrated attempts to make him fit a particular frame or to make a particular mm-hmm. frame fit him.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the and alongside those attempts, there's um, the uh, I guess as you mentioned, like his attempt and his sort of. His determination to impose the understanding either that he has come to that he believes in or he would like you to believe in um concerning concerning his crimes and there at a few different moments in the book there are kind of comparisons made with um potential like fictional characters so um, there's a moment where you write, "The more I came to know him, the more he put me in mind of Raskolnikov, mm. the murderer protagonist of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, or of Meursault, the dispassionate narrator of Camus' The Stranger." There's a moment when the, I think, one of the detectives describes him as kind of a Walter Mitty type. Yeah. Um, but the the fictional comparison, which is sort of one step step removed in a way, which really struck me as I was reading, was your description of uh, Banville's character, um, Freddie, where you describe him as. An Irish humbert, humbert. God, <laughs> and suddenly, when you said that, it's it felt almost to me that sort of, if if you like, MacArthur was perhaps trying to humbert, humbert you, <laughs> in a sense, as the writer. Like he was, yeah. he had this kind of this this position, uh, this justification, this apology, in a sense, for mm. his for his actions, which he was trying to kind of uh, foist onto you in a similar way to which uh hum, Humbert Humbert tries to foist it onto the the readers of Lolita.
1: Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? And he does have kind of a fancy prose style. There's no mm-hmm. around it, you know. He's he's almost <laughs> the, the fancier writer of the two of us. Um yeah, I mean there's so much of that going on. And actually when you you know, I hadn't really I hadn't really thought of Humbert Humbert as as, you know, even com- comparing MacArthur to another fictional character who I'm comparing to another, <laughs> another is Yeah, I mean, I guess that's part of the kind of uh, wager of the book in a way. Mm -hmm. The sense that everything, not that everything is fiction, I don't believe that, but fiction is part of everything, you know? Mm -hmm. Fiction is part of the truth. It's part of how we understand the world. And in as much as it's, as much as the book is an attempt to get to the truth of this person and, you know, what he did it's also a a reckoning with the act of writing and and how Mm -hmm. the act of of making narratives of of writing itself in a way is you know completely inseparable from how we understand the world you know Mm -hmm. so it is a book about a writer and a subject but it's also a book about um fiction in all its forms, you know, and, and, and how central that is to to our, mm. understanding of our own lives.
0: Yeah. Some, and yet there's what, you know, there's one moment where a friend of yours, Katie, I think her name is, kind of doesn't yeah. exactly upbraid you about this, but almost kind of uh, gives oh, you a bit of a kind yeah. of a, a slap around the, the head about it.
1: Yeah. I think she would herself describe it as an, an upbraiding. Yeah. And like, you know, when we were having that conversation, uh, I, like I knew instantly she, that she was right. Um mm-hmm. Katie's an editor. Uh, she's not my editor, but she is an editor, and she definitely has those kind of instincts of like cutting through the bullshit. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, the point that she makes is that MacArthur's not a fictional character. He's not your mm-hmm. character. He's a real person, you know. And like any real relationship, it's defined by power dynamics. And you know, uh, as as the power dynamics shift, he's going to act in in ways that are in, unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, like <clears throat> that passage where I basically verbatim quote Katie's, you know, uh, taking me to task and over mm-hmm. the phone, that's the, that's the one that most people have, have pointed out as like, wow, that's that, you know, the best bit in the book, you know, <laughs> as with all my books, <laughs> the, <best laughs> bit in the book is always someone else saying something to me, <laughs> my wife or my friend, Katie or whatever. Um, yeah. And it's proven to be more and more true as, as time goes on
0: mm-hmm. but it, it, it does really feel that in a sense that that conversation sort of anchored you almost sort of anchored the writer to to reality in a way like sort of when uh, when you were being when you were facing these um these i guess these these temptations to to impose narrative coherence and to uh, yeah. to find you know an arc yeah. to to macarthur i mean this it's a, of,
1: like you know the, the the kind of funny thing about that scene uh, is that, I, I call it a scene, you know, it was an actual moment in my life that I remember very vividly. <laughs> Thus that's,
0: almost proving the point, I guess.
1: <laughs> and the, the whole thrust of what Katie was saying, was like, you know, Mark, not everything is like, you know, something for your book, you know, it's, it's mm. not, he's not, he's not your character. You're not his creator. And of course I recognize the truth of that, but I also said, that's brilliant. Can I put it in my book? And she said, mm. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Boy. Yeah. yeah
0: there, there there is also the uh the sense of kind of how this i don't know if we would say intrudes upon your life because in a sense you you know through embarking on the project you've invited macarthur into your life but did you um you spoke about sort of a naivety earlier about the you know getting him to speak to you did you also have a certain naivety about the uh assessing the impact you you thought it could have on uh, on your everyday life when you weren't writing the book and when you weren't thinking about MacArthur, or was that something you felt you kind of were quite prepared for when you, when you undertook the project? In in a way,
1: the book, up to a point, the book was maybe easier to write than other things that I've written. Mm -hmm. There were moments of like real difficulty and that's, I would say, apparent to a reader, you know, a lot of it having to do with the morality of telling the story and telling them in the particular way that I tell it. Um, So there were moments of real difficulty that, you know, kind of weighed very heavily on me, the kind of responsibility of telling the story and, you know, telling this, um, you know, when I say story, that kind of strikes me as wrong because it's, Mm -hmm. I'm turning it into a story and that's part of the moral problem of it. Um, And it's not a story. And there were these two absolutely horrific tragedies that happened in these in the lives of these completely unsuspecting people and that have continued to resonate and define any number of lives since then so you know i was very aware of the kind of moral responsibility and, and maybe kind of potentially wrongness of doing what i was doing you know i was always kind of alert to that and aware of that not enough to not do it but sure alert to it for sure so there was some real difficulty there um But I think most of the kind of unforeseen heaviness and difficulty came, uh, you know, there's so much of, one of the things that's really struck me about that book since it's been out is that it feels, and I think this is part of why people have responded to it in this way that for me is quite new and, and, and largely gratifying is that there's something about the book that feels very open-ended. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, it feels in in a way to me, almost, I don't want to say unfinished because it is for better or worse, absolutely finished, but there's something, yeah, I suppose quite open-ended about it in the sense that the relationship with MacArthur didn't just end at the point when the book ends. Sure. In a certain sense, the existence of the book created a, a, a much more intense dynamic in our in our relationship and so the difficulty uh around the book had to do with the existence of the book itself in the world and Mm -hmm. there were some legal difficulties in terms of getting it to publication and yeah a lot of a lot of stressful stuff in terms of like just managing MacArthur's anxieties about Mm -hmm. the consequences of the book coming into the world my own anxieties for sure um yeah so you know there was a lot of sort of yeah unforeseen kind of stuff that 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 I had to deal with that you know there were certainly points where um, I certainly asked you know was it worth doing you know mm-hmm. at one point my agent even said you know you don't have to publish this book um, and that was never really a, as as heavy as things got there was never really a you uh, a realistic prospect for me, but yeah. So, it, you know, it, in certain ways, it was, it was easier to write than other books that I've mm-hmm. done in the sense that I didn't have to get on a plane every few weeks or sure. I think we walk down the road. Um, and it was relatively, relatively straightforward in the sense that there was a, um, you know, there was material that pre-existed me, you know, I didn't mm-hmm. have to kind of make it out of nothing, um, but there were other ways. Yeah. In which it was uh, a difficult book to, mm-hmm to get to to get to the point that it's got to
0: yeah one of i think the most sort of interesting moral reflections in the book is when you talk about um the decision not to include too much i guess backstory would be the word of the the victims Mm. themselves um and and you you write about how there is a a sort of a trend and i think the term you use is a moral imperative in a lot of uh contemporary crime writing of having the victims at the center Mm -hmm. and yet there's something about this story, about, in a sense, the, I get the, the randomness of um, of, the two, of the, the two victims. I mean, you mentioned, like, particularly Bridey, who was just sunbathing, you know, just happened to be, as the awful saying goes, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. That me- means that actually, if you had included her story and had tried to make it part of MacArthur's story, in a sense, that would be giving, a, I guess, a particular spin to her life. -hmm. Which, um, you know, without her consent and without her family's family's consent, but it it must have been quite a, in an odd way, quite a quite a hard line for you for you to draw as a writer. It
1: it was, and like the majority of the kind of tortured moral triangulation that I went through and put myself through in the book, all had to do with with that question around, Mm -hmm. you know, how do I approach. The murders themselves, where do I put um, Bridie Gargan and, and Donald Dunn in my story? Where do I put myself in relationship to them? And you know, when I started out, it, it was absolutely clear to me that I needed to try to speak to um, the family members mm-hmm. and to hear more than they had already said in the media. Uh, they both, both families kind of stopped talking at a certain point um, Mm -hmm. before MacArthur was released from prison 11 or 12 years ago. I did set out to speak to them and it became clear after, you know, quite a long period of, of frustration of trying to reach them, trying to get them to talk that they just simply didn't talk anymore. Mm -hmm. They weren't going to talk to me or anyone. Um, And that felt, yeah, as I say, it was frustrating at first um, because it left me without the material to, as I say, center the, uh, victims' stories or narratives, um, but then in a way, I started to realize that there was something quite freeing about that because if I had all this material for their stories, I would have had to use it, and I was never, mm-hmm. I was never confident that that was the right thing to do. You know, I was never confident with the morality of putting the turning the lives of Bridie Gargan and Donald Dunn into narrative material in a way for use in the larger narrative of my book, which for better or worse, was absolutely a book about Malcolm MacArthur. Mm-hmm. That was always my interest, you know, it was to tell, to try to tell the story of this man. And, and in a, I guess a, a different sense than the story of my relationship with this man. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, really where I came to and where I wound up was, it didn't feel right actually ever mm-hmm. to use their lives to sort of flesh out the the narrative of this central character, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and, you know, this isn't to say that it, it would have been wrong of me to do that or that another writer approaching this story might do it in a different way and that that wouldn't be right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just didn't feel instinctively like the right thing for me and like in a way the morality and the aesthetic considerations were kind of more or less aligned in this sense that it just felt like the right way to tell this story you know um mm-hmm. morally and aesthetically as well so I was you know not to say that I wasn't concerned about how people would would read that you know I was very concerned about people sort of um thinking I wasn't in good faith or that I had made a morally catastrophic decision mm-hmm. in order to kind of ruthlessly tell this story in the way that I felt it should be told or whatever. Um, maybe there's a bit of that. I don't know, but I haven't seen much of it, which is kind of a relief. You know, I think people have mm-hmm. generally understood the kind of moral seriousness of, of what I'm doing and what I've been trying to do with this book.
0: Yeah. 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 So, so, so that leaves you in the position where you have, Essentially, I mean, you do speak to other people. You speak to detectives, and you speak to sort of some people who are sort of peripheral to the story. But at your at the center, you have you have Malcolm MacArthur. One thing which I'm I wasn't entirely clear of reading the book. I mean, we get a vague sense of it, but I'd be intrigued to know is this the the amount of time actually you you spent with him? So sort of you know, do you oh uh, either uh, this seemed to be kind of a regular thing over a period of you know months and maybe a couple a couple of years, like. Yeah. Do you do you have a, a sort of a, a rough count of the of the hours you, you spent in his company in order to, That's to write this book?
1: And that and that you pick up on the vagueness. Um most people haven't, most readers have not asked that question or thought <laughs> question it. Um and that vagueness is actually quite deliberate. Um it it wasn't necessarily my choice or my choice alone. Uh-huh. Um you know, any nonfiction book, and certainly a book of this nature, the sort of unacknowledged legislator is always the the legal read, and there was a, of course a very stern kind of uh, <laughs> legal figure on the wings of this book. Um, and, and so, one one of the things that MacArthur was quite kind of uh, paranoid about was, I'd say, paranoid as though it was irrational. I think there was, you know, probably good reason for him to um, not be seen as like having talked to me for a certain point after he told it like his you know his um probation officer about it and came, you mm-hmm. know and clean and so on uh and we kind of negotiated like so it's about a year and a half the, the, the most of the material in the book happened in about a year and a half but mm-hmm. i didn't want to be too explicit about how mm-hmm. long we had talked for i mean i think sure. you can pick up on it in the book you can probably get get the impression from sort of external references or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about a year and a half. Um, okay. We talked for a lot longer than that, but most of what wound up in the book mm-hmm. is in a period of about 18 months.
0: Yeah. 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 And that, and that's, um, I mean, the reason I asked that as well was because there's this quite striking moment um, where um, MacArthur, you know, after having spent obviously a certain amount of time with you and having had, you know, what he Clearly feels is a an intellectual connection mm. with you. Um, I mean, just by just by letting you in and speaking to you, he mm. he clearly sort of is open to the possibility of that. And where he says we may even become friends, mm. uh, and you said he said then with a slightly nervous laugh, if you would consider the possibility. Mm. Um, and firstly, I find I find the the, the paragraph you write after that has a reflection of of what it would mean to become Malcolm MacArthur's friend absolutely fascinating hmm. but also it just made me reflect on the um the notion of friendship in itself like it's sort of because in, in a way there was something i found almost naive almost childlike in the way that MacArthur clearly thinks of the the idea of what a what a friend is um like i suppose i suppose where i'm getting to is this sort of like having spent so much time with him there's clearly I don't know. It's just something. Would it be described as a friendship? Would it be described as a rapport? Like, did yeah. you come to some sort of way that you were comfortable of describing the the state your your interaction with MacArthur? Had yeah. come
1: to? Well, like, there's a few things I w- would have to say. I suppose one of which is that um, he, you know, he he did say that to me at a couple of occasions, and it was very mm-hmm. clear to me that uh, he was partly speaking to me in the first place and certainly saying saying that out of you know loneliness um -hmm. quite an isolated figure certainly was at that point during the pandemic um and so you know I write about it but I I was very aware of the ease with which my position in relation to MacArthur could become exploitative so Mm -hmm. um part part of that led me to kind of be sort of I suppose gently repelling his mm-hmm. his suggestion that that might happen, um but also just from my own point of view, the idea of you know it, it would be sort of in a way an emotional conflict of interest you know to become mm-hmm. friends with someone I'm writing a book about um sure. of course, you know you can foresee a circumstance in which that might be you know perfectly normal or whatever, but also you know the, the and I'm not proud to say this necessarily, but you know, he murdered two people and I don't know that I, am enough of, a, you know, um, I'm not any kind of Christian, but I certainly am like, you know, uh, I don't know that I could be friends with someone who did the things that Mm -hmm. he, you know? Um, so there are any, any number of kind of, uh, difficulties with that. Um, and that's part of the kind of drama of the book, I suppose, Mm -hmm. sort of like getting close and in a way, a kind of intimacy, but also, you know, he's performing a certain kind of persona for me, and equally, mm-hmm. I'm performing a certain kind of persona for him, which is one of the kind of um, hyper professional kind of distance and and you know creation of barriers and uh, you know the kind of intellectual distance and and, and so on that that goes on. Um, but it's all very complicated and, and murky, and that's mm-hmm. part of the difficulty for me of the book but also part of what makes it so vital and kind of Mm -hmm. fascinating to me. And I think part of what makes it so open-ended as well.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, We're running out of time, but a couple of things I would like to ask you quickly before we finish, I suppose the first, and I don't know how much you'll be able to answer this. So please feel free to kind of veto and move on. But you have alluded to sort of the, um, I said, so kind of a a further complication to the relationship after the, you know, the book being written and the, you know, the book coming out. and it's impossible to read this book without knowing, I think, that MacArthur would definitely read what you had written and very likely respond to you about it. Is, is, is my reading there correct? Have you, Yeah. has he definitely. read it? Has he responded to it? And are you able to talk about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can talk about it in sort of general terms. Yeah, I mean, I, I always knew that he was going to read it. You know, mm-hmm. he, he would say things, <clears throat> you know, at a certain point, you know, it became clear that uh, the book was not going to be, you know, I, very early on. I tried to make it as clear as I possibly could that the book would not be an apologia. That I was, right. I had an agenda here, and it was very much at odds with whatever his agenda might be. And his mm-hmm. agenda was, in some ways, less complicated than mine, in that he wanted to tell his side of the story. He wanted to mm-hmm. set the record straight, as it were. You know, there's within that there's any number of complications because he's often simply not telling the truth as far as i'm concerned um but you know i made it clear that the book would not be something that would be easy for him to read and he would say oh you know um i understand you you have your own kind of agenda here and and also i'm not even sure if i will read it you know i don't don't read everything that's written about me and so Uh (laughs) i kind of say you know come on no one's ever written a book about you before this is like a very different kind of Mm -hmm thing that's being generated about you and your story uh and he, you know he kind of got it but yeah he he read it very very close to publication because mm-hmm. yeah and in a way i felt um a bit uncomfortable about it because you know he he was he felt very exposed by the publication of the book you know and, and certainly the announcement of the book was mm was a big kind of uh, fear for him that the book would be announced and it would become clear that he had spoken to me for the book and that he was being quoted in it. And that he was, you know, in theory, possibly in breach of his, of his license regulations and that, you know, he would be hauled back into prison. None of that happened, but it was a a real fear for him that it might be a consequence of the book coming out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had to be aware of that, Um, but I gave him the book quite close to publication and yeah, he, he read it. He read it very, very, very quickly. he read it within about three hours of my dropping it through <laughs> You know, he was furious about the book. He was um, furious about it in, in a way that, you know, he was quite focused on certain details that he felt I had got mm-hmm. wrong or ways that in which I quoted other people um, without, you know, without questioning them and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, certain Certain of those issues might have been fair enough. Certain of them were uh you know I, I absolutely didn't agree with but yeah he was he, you know and, and from my part i was kind of angry that he read it in three hours you know i, I sort of said how did you read it so quickly And he said uh hmm. I speed read it <laughs> <laughs> like, i think i was kind of mortally offended really um as you know i quoted the the famous woody allen line about speed reading war and peace it was about some russians <laughs> So, yeah, but he read it again the following day and uh, um, he had sort of more nuanced take on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, yeah, if I'd if I'd written a book that he wasn't angry about, I think I would have known that I had done something wrong, you know, that I hadn't approached it in the right way. So, um, yeah, and I, I knew he'd be angry about it. He probably mm-hmm. knew himself what was coming. So, uh, yeah, uh, but I think at the same time, <clears throat> I had to be more we're certainly equally concerned about the families of the victims and and you know I, I suspect they probably haven't read the book but even just mm-hmm. the kind of the extent to which it's been present in in the media in <clears throat> you know certainly in Ireland uh, to a large extent in the UK as well um, that's been kind of something I, you know that I can't control all of that but certainly that was a um, a source of kind of uh, caution and sort of anxiety to me and uh mm-hmm. yeah so yeah it's been it's been an interesting and somewhat fraught experience in lots of different ways
0: yeah but- yeah yeah what what I'd, I'd like to finish with is um there, there are moments in the book where i guess you you never you never give us an explanation you give us kind of uh perhaps kind of some ideas of what might feed into an understanding so there's a moment. Uh, for example, when you said this, you write, it seems to me that MacArthur's crimes are embedded in the deep logic of his privilege. Mm-hmm. There's another moment where, which I thought was a really interesting turn of phrase and a really interesting concept was you write about the peculiar foolishness of the intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it seems to me that sort of above all of that, a lot of what this book seems to be about is for you as a writer coming to terms with the the reality of knowing that you can't really know Mm. (laughs) and you and you won't really know whether that's knowing macarthur as a man or knowing what ultimately you know 40 odd years ago drove him to to commit these um to commit these crimes have you found since you've finished the book and through the process of writing it that this coming to terms with knowing that you can't know and of being uh content in a sense not to have an explanation, not to have a narrative, not necessarily to have a sense. Have you felt that impact on your, the way you are in the world, the way you are as a writer, the way you engage with news or other stories or or other books?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess I've always felt that way in a sense, but I've never been able to sort of explore it and drill down to it, Mm -hmm. into it in in the way that I have in this book. Um, You know, I suppose, unavoidably, the book is sort of a true crime book, but, you know, and, and I have nothing against the true crime genre. Some of the best nonfiction literary nonfiction has been absolutely squarely within that sort of mm-hmm. category. Um, but one of the things that I have found about true crime is that, and I think the the book in in, in a way, in as much as it's anything, is kind of an argument with the genre, you know, um, with the, the way in which I suppose narrative nonfiction generally tends to, uh, You know, there's something reductive about creating a compelling narrative around something like these murders, which are, Mm -hmm. you know, this, to tell the truth of these, of these things is, is somehow at odds with Mm -hmm. trying to find a single truth and to tell that through narrative, you know? Um, And so, yeah, that has kind of, I suppose that has opened things out for me a little bit and I've, you know. Been able to, in this book to explore something that I, not not to say that I already think it or that I always felt this way, but yeah, yeah, it's been kind of a. I feel like it, you know I keep saying that the book is open ended, but one of the ways in which it's open ended is that I feel it's opened out something for me as a writer, mm-hmm. which is, uh a set of possibilities that I might be able to take forward into other, other things, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to whatever uh, you may do next. Um, A Thread of Violence is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, from our um, bricks and mortar store, from our online store as well, or from your local independent bookstore, wherever wherever you may be based. Uh, Mark, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, Adam. It was great. Really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favorite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.